it's a special day here at our church because we have a guest speaker that just about every one of you know. It's our pastor emeritus, Daryl Delhousey. Uh, Daryl pastored this church for 25 years and did an amazing job in leading and preaching and shepherding the people of Scottsdale Bible Church. And he's still in the area. He's the president of Phoenix Seminary. Again, he's our pastor emeritus. And it's always a joy and a treat to have Daryl come and speak to us today. So hang on to your pew, Cactus and Venue, hang on to your seat. We're excited to have Daryl with us today. So let's give a great Scottsdale Bible welcome to Daryl Delhousey. Thank you, good morning. Good morning to all of you, and uh, especially good morning to Samuel. I, uh, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm watching his fingers. You know, <laughs> I'm worried that he's going to lose a couple of them. They're going to flow right down to the floor and roll on, on, on down. Uh, what a wonderful gift. What a wonderful gift, and to share it with us, we are so, 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 so grateful. Well, uh, it's always good to be here. I'm just waiting for the day they throw me out. You know, Pastor Emeritus always means he, he's still alive. I can't believe it. And he's still kicking and I'm still here. You know, uh, um, it was Peter who, who said that sanctify Jesus Christ as your Lord, always being ready, prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. But always with, with respect and, and gentleness but always being ready, prepared to give an answer. The word answer is apologia in, in the Greek language, uh, apology. It means defense, a reason. You know, we, we live in a world that's getting darker and it's lost. People are actually beginning to ask questions and a lot of people are beginning to ask honest questions about what it is that we believe. Peter said, always be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within you. I want you to be aware that this weekend, Scottsdale Bible Church is providing an opportunity for you to be prepared to give answers to your questions. It's an apologetic conference this coming Friday and this coming Saturday, where we're bringing Dr. Peter Williams and Dr. Dirk Jonkine uh, from Tyndale House in Cambridge. You do know they're smarter there at Tyndale House in Cambridge. And we're bringing the smart ones over here to help us get smarter. And uh, tickets are available, and I want you just to be aware that, that we need to be ready to answer the questions, the hard questions that are being asked about a Christian worldview. And, and, you know, some people wonder, what is a Christian worldview? Let me give it to you real simple. Christian worldview is simply this. It is the belief that absolute truth exists. And absolute truth is the Scriptures. That's a Christian worldview. Everything emanates from that. And the world does not believe it for a moment. And so they have questions about it. And I want to make sure you have and you are prepared to be able to give those answers. So tickets are available uh, 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 for that. Because if you invest in it, you're going to take something away from it. Starting again, uh, January 23rd, we'll pick up the second half of the president's class. That's the class I'm doing for Phoenix Seminary and here at Scottsdale Bible Church on Monday night. We did the first half of the book of Revelation in seven lectures. Now we're going to start and we'll do the last half of the book of Revelation with the final seven lectures. And again, no tickets. I'm free. <laughs> of course, you know, like they say, you get what you pay for. But anyway, the point is that uh, join us. There's about six, 700 folks show up on Monday nights here. We'll start up again January 23rd, go seven more sessions. Love to have you join us. Well, like Sam said, we are now into 2014. 
Are you ready? You know, a lot of us found 2013 a little tough, had some tough times. My question this morning to you is that did you find that during 2013, from time to time, you got slapped along the side of the head with some waves of doubt? Doubt where you asked the question, God, what's going on? Why, why me? Why, why now? Why, why this? God, are you there? Are you up there even aware of what's happening to me? And you might say those are more than one questions. Well, I know, but apparently it's okay to ask questions because Job sure shared his share of questions, and I guess it was okay. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, when we enter into various trials and temptations and struggles, it's okay to ask God some questions about why? Wisdom. God, what, what, what is going on here? Do you ever sometimes really wonder the real question, really the only question we need to know how to ask? And I want to make sure you don't leave this morning without knowing how to answer. When the question comes up, is there really anyone there to answer at all? You see, the atheists and the agnostic, they tell us that we're on our own. There's nothing out there other than a cold, dark universe, and that cold, dark universe does not have you on its mind. Call all you want. No one's going to pick up the phone. Your prayers are nothing more than a vapor in the wind. So, when you get those doubts, as you will get those waves of questions, this year, 2014, how are you going to respond? How to respond to the question, is he even there? How do you even know that he's there and engaged in your life and listening to your prayers and going to do something about it? A philosopher, Mortimer Adler, in his essay on God, he wrote this. The whole tenor of human life is affected by whether men regard themselves as supreme beings in the universe or acknowledge a superhuman being whom they conceive as an object of fear or love, a force to be defied, or a Lord to be obeyed. I've been asked in my 45 years of ministry, how many times can you prove God? Can you prove that there's a God? Well, let me ask you. Can you prove to me there was an Abraham Lincoln? See, this concept of proof, we employ a, a scientific method of repetition and measure, to give proof of things. In our arrogance, in our sophistication, we want everything that we're going to believe in or trust to be able to be proved. And by definition, the only way you prove anything is it has to be repeatable and it has to be measurable. But what if something cannot be repeated? What if something cannot be measured? How do you play back the beginning of the universe? How, how do you have a rerun of Abe Lincoln? And when you talk about measuring, have you ever heard about a foot of love or two pounds of justice or just a few inches of mercy? It doesn't always work with proving. Using a scientific method to prove the existence of a person, any person, is like using a garden hose to make waffles. It's just very difficult. And the point is the waffles are going to turn out very good anyway. So how do you know 
the existence of a person if you can't prove the person because a person is not repeatable and measurable. Well, then how do you know? Well, the Apostle Paul has an answer to that. In Romans chapter 1, if you love God, you have your Bibles. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. And, and, and Paul says this in a short little paragraph. I want to make sure you fully understand this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following. The apostle says, for the wrath of God. Now the word wrath is the word orgates. It means the displeasure of God. It's not God's throwing a tantrum up in heaven. But the wrath, the displeasure of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that they're without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they came futile in their speculations and their hearts. Hearts were darkened. Here Paul simply says, you want to know, before you look up, you ought to first look in and then look out so you know who it is you're looking up to. So he says, when you have those waves of doubt, let's first begin with first looking inwardly. In other words, God made himself known within them. So he made himself known to them. How so? First, Paul's going to say your conscience. To the very conscience of every human being. You see, anthropology and the study of history has shown us that basically among the ancient cultures, even up to this day, and the most remote cultures today, have some concept, some understanding of worship of a creator. It may be some kind of perverted worship, some kind of strange creator, but there still is some kind of understanding of a creator. You go to the most sophisticated animals. I've read that they're the baboons. They've got little groups of baboon cultures and they pick bugs off each other and they're faithful to each other. But you never see the baboons the first day of the week gathering together, worshiping the big baboon in the sky. Matter of fact, in studies of all animal kingdom, there's no evidence of any concept of the worship of anything outside themselves as creator. And yet you will not find a culture without it from the beginning of time. Interest, there is within every one of us a moral code. Within us a consciousness, a sense of moral imperative. It's this desire for, for justice. It's even recognized in secular magazines. The U.S. News and World Report. There's an article on cheating. That basically everybody cheats. And yet it says this. Yet there is a tension here as well. As great as the urge to cheat may be, we also have an almost hardwired hatred for cheaters and a deep-seated urge to punish them. From where does that deep desire for justice come? They just did a study coming out the last year out of Yale University. They studied infants, five-month-old infants, and they found even infants at five months have a sense of right, wrong, good and bad, a sense of justice. I mean, I see that in my grandchildren. 
God gave me Holly. Holly gave me two sons. My two sons gave me two daughters. My two daughters gave me six grandchildren. And we hadn't been teach any of our grandchildren the concept of fairness. They seem to have it already mastered. How many times have you heard your kids say, but that's not fair. How many times have you said, that's not fair. Who taught you it's not fair? We're all born hardwired with this consciousness of right, wrong, just, and injustice, and we demand justice. Every human being. Now, they say in different cultures, justice may mean different things, but pretty much across the board, eating your mother is pretty much accepted as not a good idea. So the fact is, there is this common sense of a moral code, a moral morality. Remember, it was the celebrated atheist, C.S. Lewis, in his testimony said, he came to Christ because he could no longer, as an intellectual, he could no longer dismiss the sense of the moral law that was placed within him. And he knew that there was a moral law within him, his conscience, there had to be a moral lawgiver that placed it there. This is even the point that the Apostle Paul makes in Romans chapter 2, when, when he says this in verse 14. For when Gentiles, goyim, who do not have the law, see, see the Jews, oh Samuel, his race, he always had the law. The Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, God had spoken. But we Gentiles, we, we didn't have a clue. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things in the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves. How so? In that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing them when they knew they did wrong or else defending them when they knew they did right. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. So not only do we look in, but look at your own conscience and that law, that moral code, that deep desire for justice. From where did it come? But also look at within, look at your experience. How do you account for the change in your life? And you say, well, I don't know if my life's changed that much. There has been a change in your heart. See, Jeremiah 33, verse 31, verse 33, Jeremiah says, God promised that I will put my law within your hearts. I'll give you, no longer will be about keeping external rules. I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do. That's not the issue anymore. All of a sudden, the law that's been outward there, trying to keep it, bucking it, is now placed within our hearts. I have a heart desire to do things that honor the Heavenly Father. From where did that come? Ezekiel 36 goes on to say, he says, I'll take your heart of stone. I'll pull it right out of you. And I'm going to replace it with a new heart, for I'm going to place my spirit within you, and he will cause you to walk after my statutes. He will give you a desire to want to honor God as your heavenly father. Every believer has a desire to honor God. Whether we do, that's why we confess. That's why we feel shame at times. But the heart's been changed. So how do you account for that? Well, well maybe it's just my imagination. Maybe. Late Paul Little used to say that if a man came through into a room and, and he had a fried egg hanging on his left ear, and he said, you know, this fried egg hanging on my ear has changed my life. 
It has given me a new heart desire. It has given me the freedom from guilt and sin. It has given me purpose and definition for my life. What would you say to him? Maybe it's the same thing with you Christians. It's no different than having a fried egg hanging from your ear. But I know I would ask one simple question. I would ask, has anyone else found such an experience from a fried egg hanging on their ear? And I'd like to know the answer to that question. I would suspect not. Well, then has anyone else experienced a change in their heart desire by coming to Jesus Christ? By coming to God? And the answer is literally millions upon millions from every race and every language and every tribe, from all multiple cultures, and not just today, but going back 2,000 years. And as far as people coming to God, getting new hearts, it goes back thousands of years. And I have the exact same experience as all those millions of people. How do you account for that? Unless indeed God did exactly what he said. When someone comes to God, God gives them a new heart and changes them. So before you start looking up and wondering if God is there, first look in. Take a real good look about that sense of justice, that moral code, and that change of heart that you know has happened. But then, before you look, look out. Because Paul says here, God has made himself known, notice, by what he has Made, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen and been understood. Now Paul says, God, if you look out, you'll see two things. God has made himself known, specifically his, his, his eternal power and his divine nature. And he's made these known so they can be seen, so they can be clearly understood. If you look. Notice, for example, his eternal power. Just think of the concept of not just power, eternal power. Power means you can accomplish what you want done. Eternal power has a whole other dimension to it that is beyond our understanding. How is God going to communicate that? There's a law of cause and effect. In other words, I walked in here and had a black eye, and you say, what happened? What do you mean, what happened? Nothing happened. Well, no, you got a black eye. Uh, some, some, what, what caused you to have a black eye? I said, well, nothing. It just has happened. See, it's ridiculous. Every effect has a cause. It's a law of nature. The law of cause and effect. Well, beloved, we human beings and our universe we live in are an effect. There was a man named J.W.N. Sullivan. At the end of his uh, life, at his death, Time, Time magazine called him one of the world's four or five most brilliant interpreters of physics to the world, to the common man. And he wrote this. The beginning of the evolutionary process raises a question which is as yet unanswerable. What was the origin of life on this planet? Until fairly recent times, there was a pretty general belief in the occurrence of spontaneous generation. It was supposed that lowly forms of life developed spontaneously from, for example, putrefying meat. But careful experiments, notably by those of Pasteur, showed that this conclusion was due to improper observation. And it became an accepted doctrine that life never arises except 
from life. So far as actual evidence goes, this is still the only possible conclusion. But, but, since it is a conclusion that seems to lead back to some supernatural creative act, it is a conclusion that scientific men find very difficult to accept. End of quote. Bertrand Russell hated Christianity. He, he wrote a small book entitled, Why I Am Not a Christian. In it, he said that when he was a child, God was all he heard in answer to any question he had about existence. But when he asked, well, who created God, no answer was forthcoming. Therefore, he said, and I quote, my entire faith collapsed. Because no one could answer, well, from where did God come? He lost all his faith that there even is a God. Only if somebody would have read to him the first two verses of Psalm 90. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You see, if someone caused God, that someone by definition becomes what? It's early morning, but that's an easy question. Becomes God. God is God. And God wants us to see his eternal power through what he's made. So what did he make? Our solar system is made up of a sun and eight planets. Now when Sam and I were in high school, there were nine. But they made poor little Pluto a dwarf, which doesn't sound PC to me. But apparently, he, we have the solar system of one star, a sun, and eight planets, and a bunch of dwarf little planets. But, but we are a dot, a dot in the one trillion such solar systems that make up our galaxy called the Milky Way. We're a dot. The closest star to us is called Proxima Centauri. Scientists don't even use miles to try to calculate the distance from us. They use a thing called light years. Now remember, most of you know this, but a light year is the distance that light, either a particle or a wave, traveling at 186,000 miles per second, travels in a whole year. And for the note, that's 5.88 trillion miles. Proxima Centauri, Centauri, which is the closest sun star to our solar system, our gal, 4.28 light years away. Our Milky Way, our galaxy, it measures 100,000 light years from edge to edge. And it is estimated to be only one of a billion such galaxies that make up our universe. The Hubble spacecraft orbiting for the last 23 years above, can they say, penetrate 10 billion light years into space. I don't know, that, that takes a lot of faith for me to believe that. But they say it can penetrate 10 billion light years into space, but they also say they still cannot find the outer limit of our universe. <laughs> speck. Let's go even to more of a speck speck. Let's make a big U-turn and let's go to the other end of God's creation. It was Aristotle who came up with the term Adam. 
Adam meant the smallest particle there could be of the building blocks of anything. This literally means cannot be separated, divided. But we learn how to divide the atom. The atom's so small, even so much that our most powerful microscope cannot make it visible. We know that they exist because of their behavior in chemical and nuclear reactions. Atoms are like little solar systems and are mostly space with distance between the particles that make up the atom. A nucleus around which varying numbers of electrons orbit or vibrate at remarkable speeds. And these atoms combine with other atoms to make up molecules, which are the building blocks of everything. Rocks, water, trees, us. Now I'm told, if suddenly all the space between these small solar systems of an atom... If all the space disappeared, we would all be sucked into almost nothingness. It's remarkable. And it's by faith. Since origins are neither repeatable or measurable, it's by faith I am to believe that this huge universe made up of these tiny solar systems of atoms just came to be by chance. I am befuddled over how those who study such mysteries take a leap of faith and want me to take a leap of faith believing that nothing times nobody equals everything. An uncaused cause, a creation without a creator, there was a film some time ago with Jodie Foster called Contact. It was to honor the late Carl Sagan who used to make the point, it's the point of the movie, that if there's no life in other planets and the universe is so huge and we're this little dot, well then, quote, that's a whole lot of wasted space. But according to the Apostle Paul, that space is not wasted. In other words, what Paul is saying, if God wanted to create this universe... To communicate the concept of not just power, but eternal, eternal power, how large would he make the universe? I think it's about the right size. I get a little concept of what eternal power must be like. But not only that, Paul says he also made known his divine nature, his divine intelligence, his divine character. How, how, how did he do that? Albert Einstein wrote, quote, My religion consists of a humble admiration of the illimitable superior spirit who reveals himself in the slight details we are able to perceive with our frail and feeble minds. I love listening to Albert Einstein write, frail and feeble mind. That deeply emotional conviction of the presence of a superior reasoning power which is revealed in the incomprehensible universe forms my idea of God. No, he wasn't saying he believed in God. But he said, if there's an idea that I have of God, the idea would you would see him in the design and incomprehensible complexities of this universe. Dr. Edwin Conklin, a noted biologist, wrote this, the probability of life originating from accident 
is comparable to the probability of an unabridged dictionary resulting from an explosion in a printing shop. I was talking to Sam about this. He says he'll, 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 he's open to believe in evolution. Soon you can get some gorilla to get up there and play Mozart, he'll believe in evolution. The point of this ability to create. Werner von Braun, the father of the rocket, he was the director of NASA research, and he is the reason America had its first space satellite orbiting the Earth. And that scientist wrote this, and I quote, In our modern world, Many people seem to feel that our rapid advances in the field of science render such things as religious belief as untimely or old-fashioned. They wonder why we should be satisfied in believing something when science tells us that we know so many things. Why would you want to believe something when you can know something? The simple answer to this contention, he says, is that we are confronted with many more mysteries of nature today than when the age of scientific enlightenment began. He goes on to write, with every new answered unfolded, science has consistently discovered at least three new questions. The answer indicates that anything as well-ordered and perfectly created as our earth and universe must have a maker, a master designer. Anything so orderly, so perfect, so precisely balanced, so majestic as this creation can only be the product of a divine idea. Such carefulness. Consider, for example, the single human cell. Do you know how big a human cell is? It's less than one thousandth of an inch in diameter. But the stuff that is stuffed in that little cell is remarkable. Different kinds of structural proteins, many varieties of carbohydrates and lipids, and a double-stranded DNA molecule composed of more than three billion individual base pairs. Now. Do you know how long that strand of three billion base pairs is? Three feet. It's three feet long. And that thing has been coiled to fit into a cell less than one thousandth of an inch in diameter. And here's something else. If any part of this strand DNA is damaged, there's little proofreading proteins floating around ready to repair it. This is the divine nature scene. This is the divine intelligence scene. This is the carefulness of creation itself. Boy, if God is not there, then we are left with design but no designer. We're left with a creation with no creator. We're left with a cosmic effect without a cause. And how much faith do you have to have to believe when I look in and I look out that he's not there. Or is that faith at all? Or is it just simple denial? I choose not to believe he's there. Because I don't want him to be there. Well, why would a Christian not want him to be there? Depends how angry you get at God. Because you didn't get what you wanted. 
or he disappointed you. I don't know how many people I've talked to who do not believe God is there because when they were five years old, their grandmother died of cancer and they prayed that God would heal them and that's why there is no God. No, that's why a choice is made. I will punish the God who is there by saying he's not there. But you look out, you look in. You look in, you look out. And you see that God has made himself known. And when those waves of doubt hit you and you find yourself questioning, is anyone out there? So I say, you first look in, and you look and see that moral code within you. You, you see that your heart's been changed, like millions of others have who've come to God. Then you look out, and you see his divine power. By the hugeness and complexities of the creation, you see his divine nature. You see his eternal power. You see his divine nature by you seeing the carefulness and the intelligence of the design and the balance of what he's created in precision. Now you know who it is you're looking up to. Like I've said many times, God's wisdom is infinite wisdom. And an infinite mind cannot always be comprehended by our, by definition, finite minds. All that means is, I will not always understand why God does what he does. I will not always understand why me. Why now? Why this? Because if I could understand infinite mind, I would not need infinite mind. I would possess it myself. But I don't. So the question is, who is it that I will trust? When I look in and I look out and I realize what I see within, what I see without, now I know who it is I'm looking up to. I'm looking up to someone I can trust. I'm looking up to someone I can trust and believe in. As the psalmist said, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. So as your pastor emeritus, still alive, still kicking, here's my counsel for this year. Not if, but when. When you get those waves of doubt slapping you in the face, that's God even engaged, even paying attention to you? At those moments, don't, don't, don't go feeling guilt and shame. Those moments is when you look in, you look out, so you know who it is that you look up to. And when you look up and you know he's there, find your refuge in him. Have your refuge in him. And you will find that God will give you the strength and the faith and the wisdom to endure whatever comes this year. Does this make sense? If it doesn't, we're going to do this two more times. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you are there to hear our prayers. Lord, that you've made yourself known. And we don't have to be guessing at this. And Father, our faith is not in fantasy. But we've got a world around us that thinks we're nuts. And they're so hopelessly lost that they cannot believe that we've been found. Lord, even now as we prepare to remember how it is that we were found by the precious love that you expressed by sending your son, your son, the one that all things came into being through your son. All things were created by your son for him that your son 
after doing all of that, but take on the body of a man, would become flesh and receive your judgment upon himself so that you in justice could manifest your mercy and grace and give us forgiveness. He never wanted us to forget that. The most loving thing your son ever did for us. The most loving thing you've ever done for us. So Father, as we take communion now, beginning this year, we remember. We remember.